This podcast may contain discussions about violence, drug use, and it's most definitely going to contain a lot of foul language. I'm sorry, Try again. G'day, mate. Hello, mate. How's it going? Yeah, it's going okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a bit nervous about this one. I'm pretty fucking nervous too. Mostly because I'm doing David Bowie. It's big influence in my life. Yeah. I'm and uh, not looking forward to it, frankly. I don't want to ruin a beautiful dead man and, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> It's uh, it's off, it's off color. It's it's not nice. It's not. But I mean, like, I've been, I've been, I've been quite dreading this one. You know, to be honest, because um, I do love him. I do have a a tattoo in uh, which I've <laughs> taken from a song on me forever. Um, but mm. forgot about that. Until this very moment, but maybe <laughs> I reckon we should get into it because I reckon this could could potentially be quite a big one because we have we have um, some particularly interesting uh, people with uh, lots of things going on in their lives. It's true, we do, we do. All right, I'm just gonna go for it then. Get into it. Uh, all right, David Robert Jones was born on January 8th, 1947, in Brixton, South London. Love it, south of a river. Um, He was considered to be quite a gifted child who was interested in music and dance, Uh, although, funnily enough, he was described only as adequate by the school choir. (laughs) How embarrassing for them. I think that that's just, uh, maybe we could just remove that. They probably don't say that anymore, though. Well, they do. What, nowadays? In schools, I mean. Oh, he was just adequate. Yeah, I know, but I mean, like, now they, they, they'd say, like... <laughs> You're the best. Reaching for the stars. <laughs> it's yeah. a cruel world back then. It's true. Uh, he formed his first band, the Conrads, with a K. A bit nice. like the Kardashian. No? Uh, <laughs> when he was just a wee little 15-year-old in 1963. One of the members of the band, George Underwood, and Bowie got into a fight over a girl. Underwood punched him in the eye, and it must have been quite some punch because after a four-month hospital stay as well as numerous operations, the doctors told him they couldn't fix the eye, which then left him with a permanently dilated pupil and faulty depth perception. The two remained friends, though, and Underwood went on to design many of Bowie's album covers. Oh! And that dinky eye is considered one of the aesthetic aspects most well-known about Bowie. So yeah. thank you very much, George Underwood. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so he was in a few other bands too, but he always became a bit disenfranchised with them due to the other members' lack of ambition. So he went so low. Mm-hmm. And he released his debut 
album titled David Bowie in 1967. (laughs) Um, And it's pretty widely regarded that his first album was pretty shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, It was a total flop. It was real bubblegummy. Yeah. Yeah, like be yourself, mate, if yourself is some weird persona, right? Um, In 1968 he met the dancer Lindsay Kemp. Uh, and he enrolled in Kemp's class at the London Dance Centre where he studied dance and mime and avant-garde theatre. And it was here that Bowie became interested in image and personas Mm. and really got his shit together, I guess, figured it out. Mm -hmm. He released Space Oddity, which weirdly in Britain was also called just David Bowie. Again? Yeah. <laughs> it was only the international release that was called Space Oddity. Hmm. Um, and that cemented his solo career. He was absolutely prolific from then on, releasing an album every single year between 1969 and 1980. And actually some years he released two albums. Wow. Um, he invented these different personas for his music and he would talk about them like they were real people. There was Ziggy Stardust, the bisexual space alien, Aladdin Sane, thought to be inspired by Bowie's schizophrenic brother Terry, A-Lad Insane. Ah. And the Thin White Duke, who we'll talk about later. Mm. Um, Bowie spoke of feelings of inadequacy a lot and how creating these personas helped him to perform and to write more interesting and better Okay. Okay. Um, apart from his incredible music career, he also starred in over 30 films, TV shows and theatre shows. Notable mentions must go to his portrayal of the tight-pantsed Jareth in Labyrinth mm. as Andy <clears throat> Warhol, who he was friends with in real life in Basquiat, and my fave, Philip Jeffries in Twin Peaks. And after he died, he was supposed to be in Twin Peaks The Return um, and he was replaced in a very Lynchian way with a teapot. I love it. It's pretty good. <laughs> I cried actually in that. Did you? Like, oh, my God, he's a teapot. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I love this. Um, Okay, personal life here. Let's talk a bit about that. He married Angie Barnett in 1970 and the two had a son whose name is either Duncan or Zoe, depending on the year and who you ask. Um, They had an open marriage and Angie later stated that it was a marriage of convenience and that they were never in love. Oh. Mean. She was an American and wanted to work in England. And when they divorced in 1980, it was messy. She went to the press and sold stories. And once their divorce was finalised, Angie received £500,000 in exchange for a signed 10-year gag order. Oh. Of course, when that 10 years was up, she released a book all about their marriage. I haven't read her book, but... I did go on to Goodreads and read a bunch of reviews and this particular one that I liked very much goes, quote, Poor Angela Bowie, this corny, tragically unhip memoir of the glory days of glitter is unrelenting with I, me, mine. 
It's a wine festival. Ooh. Her sexual and bisexual escapades elicit ooze instead of ooze. Her strange lack of reference to her child during all this rock history is disturbing. She uh, left her son with Bowie, stating that she didn't want to have a custody battle and that because Bowie was such a fucked up coke fiend, the responsibility would be good for him. Whoa. <laughs> yes, terrible. <laughs> okay, lady. Wow. Yeah, she sounds like a real loony. But just, that's nuts. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, in this doco I watched... Um, on Amazon Prime called Bowie, the man who changed the world. She is talking about him and she calls him a skank coward. Wow. And the intensity and the way she says it is like she fucking hates him. How, how, do you know how long, how long were we together for? When was it? Until 1980 they. Yeah. So ages. Yeah. 12 years or something. That's 13 years. Commendable in this day and age. Yeah. Um. She hasn't seen her son since he was 13 and he's 49 now. Oh. And apparently after Bowie's death, when asked if she had spoken to her son, she said, quote, my son, no, why would I? I'm not interested. Wow. That's yeah, horrible. What a fucking asshole. She looks pretty drug fucked and I don't know. She's real scary. She's got a scary vibe. Yeah, I, I have to look up some recent... Images. Yeah. All right. And then, you know, rock stars and supermodels go together like Ramalamalama, Diggity Dinky Dong. <laughs> so when David Bowie met the insanely beautiful E Man, Iman? Iman. <laughs> <laughs> um, at a party in 1990, it was love at first sight. They had a gorgeous daughter. In 2000, and from all accounts, they had an incredibly happy and beautiful marriage. On his 69th birthday in 2016, Bowie released his final album, Black Star. Two days later, he died from yeah. liver cancer. No one but his family even knew that he was sick. Um, many people talk about the serendipitousness of Black Star and, like, how there were clues all in the album that he was mm. about to die. Um, some people even suggest that he killed himself, like, which is so ridiculous, like he would kill himself for a publicity stunt. Yeah. It's kind of insane. Um, I don't think that's true at all. But there's definitely something really mystic about the album. It's all about mortality, a black star is a name for a cancellation and, of course, black holes in space, mm. sucking everything into nothing. And all of the amazing imagery and the clips for Lazarus and Black Star are just beautiful and yeah. heartbreaking. It was definitely a goodbye album. Yeah. Um, but he did have lots of projects in the making. I don't think he knew he was going to die on the that day. That quickly. You know, uh, he knew he was terminal, but, yeah, very sad. But that is so dependent on each individual. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of variables. Um, now, when he died, there was such an insane outpouring of grief and people all over the world were absolutely devastated. I remember seeing, like, so many people <laughs> crying that day. Yeah. Which is strange. They didn't cry. I was sad. 
I cried when I like talked about it with someone because it was right near my dad's birthday and I think he died on my dad's birthday actually. I think he died on the 10th of January. That's Lulu's birthday too. Mm. And we were talking about my dad and it was all, Yeah. Anyway, um, he was an icon, absolutely. He was king of the misfits. Um, And, of course, his music is fucking killer. It is. Why do you love him, Kara? Well, like I mentioned, which I only just remembered just then because a lot of my tattoos are in places where I don't normally see, but I have a I have a tattoo that says, <laughs> it ain't easy, which I wrote in, in a particular typeface I like. But I just love him because I think that he's like, his creativity and his imagination just, it has no bounds. Um, I think he really influenced my life in many, many ways and I was thinking about it this today, actually, because, like, you know, we generally ask this question. But when I was in year 10, um, we'd had nine English teachers in three years and we were real mad. And so (laughs) we decided that we were going to boycott the final year exam. And so we did. Um, And then at the graduation ceremony, I really pushed for the song to be uh, Changes which is a fabulous fucking song. Great song. Great graduation song. Love it. it yeah. So we we ended up singing Yesterday, which is basically the most fucking depressing <laughs> graduation song. But the reason it was like, and these children that you spit on as they try to change their world are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. And I thought that was very, I like that. Yeah. But also I guess it was like the the fashion and like the androgynous kind of nature of his fashion. Yeah. I will tell you now, and I know what you're going to say. And thin white juke just does really speak to me, but it's purely the aesthetic. I'm not into the (laughs) fascist Nazi shit. That's not my jam. It's the, I've got to talk about that still. Sorry. But then I guess when, um, I love the personas as well. I just think that's brilliant. And I think that he was like a real trailblazer with that. And I think, when I was also, there was like a moment I had when I was like in my early 20s, I was living in London and I went to the V&A because they had this kind of retrospective exhibition. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was amazing, that exhibition. And I was just like, it really went through like all of the key, these kind of creative endeavours that he took on or, you know, took part in. And I just thought, like, I left there and my mind was just blown. I was like, what fuck, What can't you do? Yeah. And I was really inspired by him. So, yeah, yeah I'm going to say that's why I love him. And the music. I love the tunes. Yeah, look. Good answer. Thank you. Correct. It's like one of my most influential <laughs> people. So yeah. this is like trick. I'm. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to talk about some shitty things that he did. And honestly, I feel like Bowie was one that I really wanted to do just to be an asshole <laughs> because everyone loves Bowie, except my dad who did a really great bad impersonation of him. All right, so Bowie was really into cocaine and he was also into the occult and there are a bunch of references to occultist Alistair Crowley and the Secret Society of the Golden Dawn on Hunky Dory. Um, And the Golden Dawn was a secret society that Crowley was a member of. 
at the end of the 19th century. They taught magic and how to talk to angels and demons (laughs) and all that weird shit. (laughs) When you mix all that with a guy who lives on a diet of cocaine, peppers and milk. Nice. And that is actually what he lived on for like a long period of time. You end up with a pretty heavy cocaine psychosis and paranoia. He was hanging out with Jimmy Page, painting pentagrams on the walls of his L.A. house. He saw Satan coming out of his indoor pool one time. That's frightening. He was out of his mind. I mean, if it was an outdoor pool, it would be much easier to deal with. But the indoor. indoor, Just right there. Fuck that. Actually, I um, listened to a really interesting episode of Last Podcast on the left about this and I just have to tell you this joke that they said when they're talking about the devil coming out of the pool. They're like, rich people problem. (laughs) (laughs) So fucking good. Look, uh, all this shit culminated in him creating the Thin White Duke in around 1975. At first, the Duke seemed like a very conventional dude compared to his previous glam personas, Ziggy Stardust and Latin Sane. Um, the Duke was, quote, an Aryan Superman. He was very well-groomed, blonde, dressed in a white shirt, black pants, waistcoat. He was also a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> in interviews at this time, he was saying pretty fucked up Nazi shit. In a Playboy interview in 1975, he said, quote, Rock stars are fascists. Adult Hitler was one of the first rock stars. Look at some of his films and see how he moved. I think he was quite as good as Jagger. It's astounding. And, boy, when he hit that stage, he worked an audience. Good God. He was no politician. He was a media artist. He used politics, theatrics, and created this thing that governed and controlled the show for 12 years. The world will never see his like again. He staged a country. People aren't very bright, you know. They say they want freedom, but when they get the chance, they'll pass up, they'll pass up Nietzsche and choose Hitler because he would walk into a room to speak and music and lights would come on. He was like a rock and roll star. The kids would get very excited. Girls got hot and sweaty and guys wished it was them up there. For me, that is the rock and roll experience. I'm not, I think that he has a couple of valid points. I think people are stupid and I think also that, you know, Hitler could command a crowd. That's the whole point. Like, I think that. All right, let me tell you a couple other things he did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> While touring station to station in Europe, he was quoted saying, Britain could benefit from a fascist leader. All right. And he was detained on the Russian-Polish border for possessing Nazi paraphernalia. Yeah, I don't get that. And back in London at around this time, he was photographed giving the Nazi salute. That's alleged. I I saw the picture, mate. Oh, God, get off the bags, Bowie. I didn't see the picture. (laughs) But I read heaps about it. You said that so convincingly. I'm a very good liar. You better be careful. I know. So, yeah, look, he was pretty fucked up. Anyway, look, I'm going to talk about the really fucked up shit, which is the underage girls. Yeah. I knew um, this was coming. And, the, <laughs> you know, 
there's always been this gross thing with groupies and rock and roll stars, and I think it was especially disgusting way back in the 70s. Yeah. It's probably actually just as disgusting now. But, but maybe you just don't hear about it as much because it's less accepted. Yeah. Um, so there are, a f- there are three instances that I'm going to talk about. And in my personal opinion, from least bad to most bad, <laughs> I really shouldn't do that. Okay. I take that back. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to give you three examples. Um, the first is Dana Gillespie when she was 14 and then 17-year-old Bowie was her boyfriend. Um, she's all over all the docos I watched about Bowie. Um, she was a singer. They made music together and they were actually friends for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And she said, quote, I had never thought of David as someone who liked young girls in particular. He liked bright women. It's been suggested to me that sleeping with me when I was 14 was statutory rape, but I've just said to writers, look, you can't put it that in because, yes, I was young, but we were just having fun. Um, two, Laurie Maddox was 14 when she slept with Bowie and he was 25. Maddox was part um, Maddox was a part of what was named, and this is very gross, the baby groupies. Ew. <laughs> so, ew. Um, they hung around Sunset Strip in L.A. with rock stars and stuff, and apparently um, a couple of them met Bowie at the E-Club on the Strip, and he propositioned her, but she turned him down. Then a couple of months later when Bowie was back in L.A., he sent his security team to find her. Um, this time they had sex and that's how she lost her virginity. Whoa. In an interview uh, that she did in 2015 on this website, The Thrillist, she says, quote, I was an innocent girl but the way it happened was so beautiful. I remember him looking like God and having me over a table. Who wouldn't want to lose their virginity to David Bowie? When asked if she thought if there was anything unusual or wrong about the age-power dynamics, um, she said, no, you need to understand that my life has never been normal. I have always been special and I always felt like the universe was taking care of me. And now you might say that in this case that he was young too. Though I think there's a very big difference between a 14 25 and, and 14. Um, but there's actually another story that came out on this guy, David Badiel. He's like an English guy who has a podcast called Stalking Time for Moon Boys, which is all about what super big Bowie nerds him and his friend are. Um, anyway, and he had this person tell this story. Um, Apparently Bowie tried to have a threesome with two 16-year-old girls when he was in his 40s Um, and this happened on the island of Mustique in the 80s. Badiel says, quote, this woman was 16 at the time and Bowie would have been in his 40s. She and her best friend had one of many drinking nights with Bowie and ended up back at their shack with David. 
David was clearly keen on a threesome and had put some work in to create it. The way he did this, according to her, was to take all of his clothes off and put on Let's Dance on cassette and dance naked. (laughs) It worked for David as both girls got naked. There were sexual goings on, but she didn't sleep with Bowie. I said, why on earth would you not want to lose your virginity to David Bowie? The, The podcast person said that? Yeah. She replied, it wouldn't mean anything to him. I didn't want to do that for him for just one night. Instead, she went outside. David did shag the friend, then came out and tried to make it all right with her because she was a bit pissed off. Ew. Yeah, that's that's gross. Also, but there's part of me that's like this is just such a weight held on the virginity thing and I, you know. Yeah, I also am not cool with that, but it's, yeah. it does mean something to some people. Of course, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Like, I guess it's just stemmed from something I don't agree with. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say this one more thing about Laurie Maddox. So since Me Too kicked off, Maddox has spoken about her experiences again. Um, And about Bowie, she said, quote, I think that's what made me start seeing it from a different perspective, Me Too, because I did read a few articles and I thought, shit, maybe... And she sounds really conflicted in this interview. Um, Like she's still reminiscing, but she does say, quote, honestly, I had a great time, but then ends with, I don't think underage girls should sleep with guys. I wouldn't want this for anybody's daughter. My perspective is changing as I get older and more cynical. So I'm going to just talk about what his supporters say to all of that stuff. So I think it's pretty safe to say that all the Nazi shit was just a result of cocaine psychosis. After his recovery from coke addiction, he apologised for what he'd said and done and he said, quote, it was a dangerous period for me. I was at the end of my tether physically and emotionally and had serious doubts about my sanity. I totally get that in a way it was the thin white duke taking over... And I also read that he was so freaked out by what he became yeah. um, that he actually never really made or used a persona ever again. After the Zinwai Duke? Yeah. Did, did you read the quote in your research? <laughs> like he says that his brain was like Swiss cheese. It's like <laughs> I love that. It's good. But, I mean, yeah, I think that <laughs> that negligence is a Swiss cheese talking. Yeah. And now with the underage girl stuff, uh, people will say it was the time, blah, 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 but that doesn't mean it's not wrong. Um, And I read an amazing article by Angelina Chaplin on the Huffington Post um, and she said, and I'm just going to quote the whole thing because it's so good, quote, real talk, you can write a catchy pop song and still like underage sex. But too often we mistake a person's talent for who they are as people. Celebrities know this and take advantage of the protection that comes with being a beloved public figure. As a result, their victims suffer in silence. Okay. Ba-boom. Yeah. I think it's I think it's pretty it's hard to talk about it because of how much we love him. Yeah, and also I think that that uh, whole excuse of of the time, it's my, I mean, like, it was a different time, but we briefly touched on this on previous episodes, but that power dynamic as well is thrown into, like, 
Yeah. I don't know. Because that those women will always be like, well, it was David Bowie. Yeah. It's a pedestal which allows pedophilia. Yeah, it's really gross. And, I mean, I think that that happens heaps less now. We'll, we'll pro- Hopefully we'll be able to talk about some uh, shitheads who have tried this shit on more recently in another episode. Yeah. Because I know that there's a lot. Me Too's come for the music industry in a bit of a way in the last 12 months or so. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, I don't know. It's a really tricky one and I think that my person as well is like similar to you in the way of like a very much, it was the time. Yeah. And that's a, I think that's a tricky thing to even like grapple with because, you know, I wasn't around yeah. when he was doing these things. So it's difficult to me for me to comprehend or make an excuse out of something that I can't fully understand. Yeah. But. Um, and if those women those three women don't, like, necessarily have a problem with what happened, then is it still fucked? Yeah. I mean, 14 is I mean, yeah, it is still fucked. (laughs) It's horrible. 14 is tricky because 14 is very different for different people. Absolutely. I, I probably at 14 still look pretty young, whereas people who are in my year... Did not like they, you know, they they look much older than I did. Yeah, yeah, and I have. I mean, also this. It was the cigs at a young age. <laughs> I think Laurie Maddox was a very different fourteen-year-old to like other fourteen-year-olds at any time. You know, I, like, I, and I, I'm not trying to blame anyone here but I do think it's interesting because I knew people growing up who I knew someone who was 12 years old dating someone who was 21 what the fuck call the cops I was 12 that is so gross I did I like I was grappling with the whole concept and the things that you know were we were talking about 12 yeah and um you know and she was lying about her age but then I'm like can you not like tell yeah, I don't know. And because when, you, when you're when you also 12, you're like, oh, no, she definitely looks older than me. But then at the same time, when you're 21, can you? I don't know. God. Yeah. Terrifying. It was. Yeah, when I was. I was like, he has a license. When I was like 14, 15, there were these gross older dudes that were hanging around Katoomba that we were all hanging out with and they were dating people. And they were way too old. I don't know how old. It's hard to remember, like. But that's like a rock star mentality. It's like you yeah. actually can't get it where you should be trying to get it. Yeah. You're and then, a like, suddenly you've gained attention from yeah. barely legals and you're, like, taking advantage of that? Yeah. I have my arm outstretched. I'm, I'm getting a little heated. All right, look, let's have a little break and uh, we'll come back with some more. Okay. Just realised I forgot to ask you if uh, I ruined Bowie for you. I think it opened up some questions like 
it just it, it opens up a whole conundrum of issues about this whole idea of a different time, but what we hold people accountable now. Like if, if this happened now, I think I'd, I'd look at it from a, a different perspective mm. for whatever reason, whether that's fair or not, but I would. But like I said, it did happen when I was in high school, like, like a, you know, similar situations and neither of which of those people were famous. No, that's true. And it's just as gross. Yeah. So, I mean, like I, I knew in the back of my mind, but it's, it's good to hear the details. I don't know if anything could ruin Bowie for me. <laughs> and, you know, I have to live with that tattoo. <laughs> Mate, I've said some fucked up shit on this podcast that I have to live with. <laughs> so <laughs> as much as I will always regret my comments post Fassie oh, information. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and Fassie is fucking ruined now. Oh. I fucking hate him now. Wow. But just that initial shock, no, can't be. I know, we need to let it I settle some sometimes. person that cannot be bad. <laughs> fucking shut up, Amber. All right. Okay, so uh, you're, you're feeling ready to chase our pleasures here? Are we maybe going to dig our treasures there? Yes. Well, you're in for a treat because we're, uh, <laughs> I mean, you can try to run and you can try to hide, but uh, we're going to be talking about <laughs> James Douglas Morrison. You! So he's a counterculture icon, filmmaker, poet, and the co-founder and dreamy frontman of The Doors. So excited. You ready? Yeah. All right. It's soundtrack to my youth, mate. Yeah. So Jim was born December 8th, 1943 in Melbourne, Florida. They have one too. Mm. Uh, so by many counts, he was a relatively shy child. Uh, his mum's name was Clara and his father was Lieutenant George Stephen Morrison. <laughs> and uh, he would eventually become a rear admiral. I find military rankings quite confusing. Yeah, I don't but get it. Pretty high ranking. So when Jim was four or five, his parents were driving through New Mexico. And, and he, he said, Father, yes. <laughs> I want to kill you. Sorry, sorry. Oh, we're going to get there and I'm going to do an impression. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so we saw a car accident and the accounts of this is vastly different from, like, each family member. But Jim brings it up a lot. He brings it up in songs like in uh, Peace Frog. And in poetry, conversations, loves, chatting about this. So Jim remembers this as like an incredibly gruesome scene. And in Dawn's Highway, he describes it like this. I don't know what happened, but there were Indians scattered all over the highway, bleeding to death. So the car pulls up and stops, and that was the first time I tasted fear. I must have been about four, like a child, like a flower. His head <laughs> is just floating in the breeze, man. Oh. And then he says, um, the reaction I get now thinking about it, looking back, is that the souls of the ghosts of those dead Indians, maybe one or two of them were just running around, freaking out and just leaped into my soul and they're still there. Whoa. And then Daddy Morrison says... We went by several Indians. It did make an impression on him. He always thought about that crying Indian. And I just like to say that the, <laughs> these are direct quotes. Like I would put, I would say, I would use different language now. This is just a quote. I would probably say First Nations people. Just want yes. to say that. Um, 
his sister also, when she was asked about this, said that he was a big fan of hyperbole. Yeah, right. He's a storyteller, as my mum would say. But regardless of the reality of the experience, it had a huge effect on the young Jim. So the family moved around a lot and Jim was an army brat. Apparently he was a real dickhead when he was in school. <laughs> just in school? Well, <laughs> it just got, it just Sorry. kind of snowballed, frankly. <laughs> but um, he was really clever. So he had an IQ of 149. I don't know what that means. Anything under over 140 is uh, considered like a genius What level. do I have? I don't know. <laughs> I personally have never taken an IQ Let's test. Let's do it. No, I don't. No, I don't than want Jim to. Morrison. I don't want to. I've always been afraid to do it, but um, yeah. So he was considered a genius, and I was like, I was a bit surprised by that, to be honest. Yeah, me too. Um, and he would like he would pretend to have like an aneurysm in the classroom and convulse on the ground, and he was like just a big prankster. And this is a constant throughout his life. Um, he was influenced by writers like William S. Burroughs, Camus, Kafka, Nietzsche, Moyer. Like he loved himself a bit of French existentialism. Yeah, don't we all, mate? Yeah, I definitely went through a big stage of that. Teenagers. Yeah. Uh, he went to junior college from at Florida State University in Tallahassee and here he was arrested at a football game after he grabbed a police officer's hat um, and just for like generally being drunk. Hmm. All then, I think when I hear Tallahassee is Ted Bundy. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. One of his one of his many spots. He was quite prolific yeah, geographically. He loved, he loved them all, but that's just stuck in my head. Sorry, I'll shut up. No. No. Uh so he then moved to California, went to college at UCLA. Uh, he um completed his undergraduate degree in um uh, at their film school. Oh. And like at the time there was no kind of I don't know, there was the teachers were being taught essentially in film because it was such a new medium. Um, But according to some of his close peers, Jim loved film and he had little interest in music. But this is where he met Ray Manzalek. Manzarek? Manzarek. Manzalek. No, it's Manzarek with an R. Manzarek. Yeah. Manzarek. I'm going to say that. I like that I've been saying it wrong my whole life. (laughs) So he met Ray Manzarek um, with whom he'd later form the band we all know and love, The Doors. Sweet. Uh, So Jim didn't attend his graduation ceremony. Instead, he hightailed it off uh, to Venice Beach. He lived on his mate Dennis Jacobs' rooftop eating cans of beans and avocados and much, much LSD. Um, (laughs) And he also wrote some of the early Doors tunes on this rooftop, including Hello, I Love You. And then so Jim and Ray started plans to start a band. Um, The name The Doors comes from a quote from William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And the quote from that is, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. And also from Aldous Huxley's book The Doors of Perception. Because they were both totally far out and expanding their minds. <laughs> and through they were off the just off their tits and reading some groovy literature. Jim essentially divorced his family. He would lie and say they were dead, and he referred to himself as an orphan. And in 1967, at the Hilton Concert Hall, Jim's mother and brother attended, and when he got to the song The End, in which he says, 
Father, yes, son, I want to kill you. And mother, I want to fuck you. <laughs> it's so yeah, intense. It's pretty full on. So when he sung those words, he looked straight into his mother's eyes and apparently it was the most ew. violent rendition of the song ever performed, ew, which is so echoes. I know. Dude, chill out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the Doors had like a meteoric rise to success and they started playing a club called the London Fog and the Sunset Stripped and the Doors were the house band. And at this stage, Jim couldn't even really look at the crowd. Like he was super shy and he would face the band, which is like the farthest cry from the frontman sex on a stick he became. Yeah. Nuts. But um, this was one of the reasons that Jim smashed the drugs and the booze because it gave him confidence and God knows we've all been there. Yeah, I get it. And around this time, Jim meets Pamela Corson and she would be one of his most consistent squeezers throughout his life. And she was also the person who allegedly found him dead. Dun, dun. He died? Yeah. <laughs> Soz. <laughs> so um, Jim relentlessly bugged the manager of Whiskey Go-Go until they got a spot in 1966 and they were the house band and they opened for Captain Beefheart and also Arthur Lee, the lead singer of Love. And apparently it's thanks to Arthur Lee that the doors were discovered because Jack Holtzman, president of Electra, flew from New York to LA. He was a bit tired, it's a long flight, and then Arthur Lee wouldn't let him leave until he heard the doors. And eventually the doors would sign with the label. Later that year, the doors opened for Van Morrison and, and, the, and his band Them. So they're a great band, mate. Yeah, they're good. And then Jim and Van, the two Morrisons, got along like a house on fire. They both loved to drink and they were also very fucking volatile. Super oh. cute. Um, but by, <laughs> by this point, Jim is like kind of finding his feet as a front man. He's absolutely crazed and constantly tripping, which honestly is like an absolute fucking nightmare to me. Like being on stage in front of a crowd while you're high off your tits is nuts. Terrifying. So terrifying. I need a enclosed space. Absolutely. Closed doors. With trusted That no one people. can go in. Unless they say so. Exactly. And then so they got this review in the LA Times from uh, a journalist, Pete Johnson, that read, sharing the bills of the doors, a hungry-looking quartet with an interesting original sound, but with what is possibly the worst stage appearance of any rock and roll group in captivity. (laughs) Their lead singer emotes with his eyes closed. The electric pianist hunches over his instrument as if reading mysteries from the keyboard. The guitarist drifts about the stage randomly and the drummer seems lost in a separate world. Despite that... In July 1967, Light My Fire goes to number one in the charts. It's a banger. It really is. And so next they play The Ed Sullivan Show that same year. So The Ed Sullivan Show is interesting because you have this pretty conservative host but these really groundbreaking performances, but they were, they were definitely rules. And so The Doors were scheduled to play and they were asked to sing Girl We Couldn't Get Much Better instead of Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Higher. And so they did this in the rehearsal, but the band agreed, and I'm going to say that this was pushed by Jim, uh, that they would sing the actual lyrics and fuck it off. And they did. And they were banned from the show after that. Who cares? And then one of the producers said, you'll never play the Ed Sullivan show again. And Jim replied, 
hey, man, we just did the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah. So at the end of 1967, the FBI opened a file on your boy. That's <laughs> exciting. Um, and in the same year, Electra paid for this big billboard on Sunset Strip, which is right near Chateau Marmon, to promote their debut album. And it cost... 1200 a month and was the first of its kind. And it was like the first band promoting Billboard and the Billboard then became like the go-to for musicians. Yeah, right. It still happens now. Cool. Yeah. I wonder if like them fucking, uh, like fucking over Ed Sullivan was the reason that the FBI opened a file. Yeah. Started watching... I mean, their series that he, their series that he was like put in by the government to be this counterculture person. <laughs> so, anyway, that, that, we're not really going to get into that. There's lots of conspiracies. Oh my god, fuck off! But um, so next came the Young Lion photo shoot, uh, which was shot by Joel Brodsky. You know the one? Leather pants, no shirt, shirt off, wild hair, just oozing sex. Yes, hot. So this is probably one, I reckon it's one of the most recognised images in rock and roll, like, ever. Would you think yeah. so? Yeah. I reckon, like, it's... it's Maybe I like John and Yoko's yeah, Rolling that's, Stone cover. Yeah, that's, probably a, that's my... a classic too. But Brodsky <laughs> said of this moment, the shoot was pretty near the end, I think. By the time he was so drunk, he was stumbling into the lights and we had to stop the session. He wasn't a wild drunk. Actually, he was kind of quiet, but his equilibrium wasn't too terrific. <laughs> Still, he was great to photograph because he had a very interesting look. It seemed like a good session to me. Morrison never really looked that way again, and those pictures have become a big part of the Doors legend. I think I got him at his peak. I think you did too, Jolie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Vogue ran a story, Time ran a story, Newsweek as well. Like their exposure at this point was plentiful. And so the doors are really at the zenith of their success. But Jim starts openly turning up to recordings off his face. He is also consistently late to playing gigs at one gig in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The doors took it to the stage, but Jim wasn't with them because he was absolutely fucking blotto again. Uh, so he'd uh, had a very heavy day of drinking whiskey and making whiskey his right-hand man. Oh. And the crowd kind of realised that Jim wasn't coming on after a while and they were pretty pissed off. Yeah. Uh, so someone went to retrieve old mate Munted Morrison. <laughs> and so he came to the stage and he tried to sing Soul Kitchen. He tripped over himself. He started yelling and swearing, slurring. He threw some shit that he could, like, <sighs> grab at the crowd, he's swearing at them directly. Oh, what a dick. And then he tried again and then the third time was charm and the show went on and he actually kind of pulled it off in the end to oh, an wow. extent. But actually on this very night, a young fellow who would eventually be our beloved Iggy Pop was in the crowd and he was inspired and stimulated by the hot mess he saw. He was like, I'm going to take my shirt off. Exactly. And he never put it back on, <laughs> no, ever. Never. <laughs> he doesn't, if you say T-shirt to him, he just looks at you confused nowadays. What is it? <laughs> so, um, they're, you know, the doors are working really hard. They're making an album. They're touring. They're desperately trying to fucking figure out how the celebration of the Lizard song is ever going to work. <laughs> they um, recorded 
the anti-war anthem that I mentioned, The Unknown Soldier, but it took 130 takes. What the fuck? And I'm pretty sure, yeah, 130 is a lot. I would die. Me too. Over and over again? No. Amber and I have recorded a song together with a a lot of other amazing, beautiful bitches. (laughs) But we did that in like a day, but 130 takes. And also I think that the end took two takes and actually their debut album only took six days to record the whole thing. Oh. Which is amazing. Before he was completely fucked, I guess. Yeah. Things are getting harder. They're getting trickier. Jim is getting messier. And so in March 1968... he was at a place called The Scene and it seems like this. <laughs> I know, it's all. But so this was frequented by a lot of musicians and like late at night it seemed like it turned into kind of like a jam session. And so one night Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin were there and Jim jumped on stage with Jimmy and then he started swearing and he's hooping and hollering and then he he falls over and he uncomfortably kind of like grabs Hendrix's ankles oh. and then he fell off the stage and knocked like a whole table into oh Janice. Oh, my God, no. Get it together, Morrison. How embarrassing. I know. This is the thing. Like I don't know whether he can be ruined or it's just like get your shit together. Ugh. So... Oh, I was going to mention, given my beautiful Bowie having been ripped, um, Jim, much like Bowie, had like some alter egos. So for Jim, he had Mr. Mojo Rising, which is an anagram of Jim Morrison. Um, It's also said that if Jim were to fake his own death, uh, that he would contact the band under the name Mr. Mojo Rising. (laughs) Like it's not very low key. It's not a common name, really, and no, um, but. Jim does repeatedly say it in the Bridge of LA Woman. So mm-hmm. I don't. Well, whatever you like, <laughs> whatever. Um, so his second persona was the Lizard King, and this came from a poem that he wrote that was featured on the sleeve of their 1968 album "Waiting for the Sun," and I think it just kind of stuck. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's good. I like it too. I always think about him. So then we have the journalist Patricia Keneally. She was sat at the front row at a door show in Madison Square Garden, New York City, and um, she was on assignment for Jazz and Pop magazine. And they would meet again after that at the Plaza Hotel and they'd have this very long interview. They talk about literature and shamanism. And uh, the interview went for like over two hours and then at the end allegedly Jim asked Patricia, who are you? And she and she replies that she's a witch. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember this from the movie. Yeah, and they had a lot of naughty flirting. You know, I want to fuck you on the floor in front of all these people. Regular courtship, <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff. And then so they boned. And also, just don't forget, <laughs> Jim is still with his mainstay Pamela Corson at yeah, this point forever. And Pamela and Patricia actually met like a number of times. Like they. We're at the same parties. They, yeah, they were they were relatively friendly. Although I think that Patricia was very mean to yeah, she's Pamela. A damn, goddamn bitch. Yeah, yeah. She's a bitch witch. She's a bitch witch. <laughs> Which you know is different from witch. She's such a witch with a B. <laughs> That's right. Then one thing leads to another. And Jim and Patricia get married in an unofficiated Celtic 
hand fastening ceremony in June of 1970. I really thought you were going to say hand fucking and I was like, what's that? I know. That would be way more fun. So they have like a a long distance relationship. Um, Jim is increasingly volatile, like he's sweet, he's sensitive, and then bam, he becomes cruel and vindictive. And then uh, I was going to mention Patricia played a small part um, as the high priestess who marries Jim and Patricia in Oliver Stone's 1991 film. Oh, the Doors. Really? Mm. She ended up hating it. She hates the yes, film now. Very silly. So the band headed off to Europe for a tour and they met the Beatles and Jim actually sat in on the recording of Happiness is a Warm Gun. Oh, yeah, wow. Good song. Um, And then there was the Miami incident. So I'll talk about this a little later when we talk about the many, many arrests of Jim Morrison. But for now, I will say that after this incident, a shitload of Doors shows were cancelled. Essentially... He was accused of whipping out his willy at a show. <laughs> it was a massive backlash. Um, the band headed to Jamaica for a holiday. Jim stayed at his own place. Pamela was meant to come, but there's different stories. Like they had an argument before they left. They got on the plane. They had an argument when they landed. Big fights. And then Jim sent her back to L.A. Oh. I'd be pretty miffed like six hours. Yeah. And it's probably longer than, to be fair. It's like six hours now. See ya. Yeah, rude. I know. And then so he smoked incredibly strong weed with the housekeeper at the accommodation he was staying at, had visions of his death, and he became increasingly paranoid, which is (laughs) fair enough, I guess. Um, Fucking weed. Also, at this point, there was like frequent rumours flying around that Jim was dead and probably know you're not doing too well when people are kind of just making assumptions that, yeah. Gonskis. Yeah, not great. Jim's consistent alcoholism started to catch up with him. And he had also, he'd created this image as a sex symbol or someone had created it for him and he embraced it really. But he he wasn't really interested in that anymore and he rebelled against it. He gained some weight. He grew a beard. He cut off his defining long locks as well. And he changed his image. But then in... December 1970, the Doors play their final gig together. It's a fucking mess. Oh. Jim, can, can you guess? Was totally fucked. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, twist. <laughs> he, he barely sung like he was using the mic stand to just like hold himself up when he like fell down because he fell over a lot. He fell on the drum riser. The rest of the band are just kind of playing their instrumental parts just kind of over and over waiting for him to like kick in. Oh, God. You know, because that's the cue obviously what? to like move on to the next. Yeah. I know. And then so John, like he fell on the drum riser and John kicked him to like get him back up and he drags himself to the front. It's bad. It was just a bad gig. And then so in April 1971, Jim heads to Paris to meet Pamela, who's already there, and they stay in an apartment in Le Marais, if you will. Uh, That was really good. Le Marais. Uh, So. (laughs) Are you French? I did it at uni. Really? Yeah. It's pretty fancy. Any French. (laughs) Um, So when he was over there, 
Like it was going pretty well. He was writing poetry, lost some weight, he was doing a bit better and then it was all over. It was curtains. Jim had sung his last song. So I'm going to just touch on some of the theories and conspiracies. You can get deep into this but I'm just going to do a little, little dip the toe in. So the most believed version of events is that on July 3rd, 1971, Pamela and Jim just listening to some records together. Pamela decides to go to bed. Jim takes a bath. A couple hours later, Jim, Pamela's like, oh, there's no Jim by my side. She goes in the bathroom, dead. Next up, heroin. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. But, like, many people are adamant that he had an overdose, including Marianne Faithful and the manager of the Rock and Roll Circus Club in Paris where he was before, um, Sam Burnett. So Marianne Faithful said it was her drug dealer ex-boyfriend, Jean de Petit. That wasn't as good. Um, <laughs> it was good. So, like, she did an interview with Mojo in 2014 when her album was coming out, and she said, I could intuitively feel trouble. I thought I'll take a few two and all and I won't be there. And he went to see Jim Morrison and killed him. I mean, I'm sure it was an accident. Poor bastard, the smack was too strong. And he died. And I didn't know anything about this. Anyway, everybody connected to the death of this poor guy is dead now, except me. Hmm. Mm. Sam Burnett says he overdosed in the bathroom of the club and was taken back to the apartment and put in the warm bath. Whoa. But why would Pam lie? Pam was also a heroin addict. So some people say that he had gone out to actually pick up for her. And also, sadly enough, three years later, Pamela was 27. She died of a heroin overdose. So sad. And the plaque on her grave reads Pamela, Corson, Morrison, even though they were never officially married. But Jim did leave everything to her. Good. She didn't really also... get it. Like oh. the court battles. Poor but um Pam. Yeah. I'm feeling Marianne Faithful. Yeah. What's she got to lose? I love her too. She's fucking cool. She is. And there was also, I listened to this fabulous podcast by, it's it's called Those Conspiracy Guys, but it goes for over five hours. So you got to buckle down. But they said, this is nuts because I had no idea, but they said in the 1960s and early 70s, 75% of all the world's heroin was produced and consumed in France. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, like it's coming from Turkey or Afghanistan or the Golden Crescent, but I I guess it was like refined and make like a consumable product in France. But, I yeah, I would not have thought that at all at that time. I guess it's easy to get it there from. Yeah. True, geographically, it's like. So there was no autopsy. The physician who declared him dead said he had suffered from a heart attack after the combo of, like, heavy drinking in a warm bath. That doctor was never found again. What? Poof, gone. That is magique. Interesting. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, just never, never, ever found. Um, it was also said that given his age, he wouldn't have died from alcoholism, but I don't buy that really because I think like Janice did, didn't she? Yeah. 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 But he'd been abusing booze for the vast majority of his life. So I think that's a potential. Yeah. 
Another theory is that Jim's still alive. In fact, he's on death. And there are two main, main fellas that people believe are Jim. And one is a rather homeless-looking older gentleman in New York who frequently recites poetry. <laughs> and the second is a man called Bill Lawyer, uh, and he lives on a ranch in Oregon, and the ranch is called Jim Morrison's Sanctuary. But I don't know, if, if um, I was what? looking for autonomy, <laughs> I probs wouldn't name my ranch after my no. former self. No, that's no. obviously ridiculous. Yeah, and they, they do this, like, overlay of this man's face and, like, Jim Morrison is like... <laughs> no. Okay. Okay, level one Photoshop skills. Jeez. So Jim is buried uh, at Père Lachaise Cemetery. I've actually paid him a visit. Oh, me too. Oh, we've both gone. Yeah. Um, so it, there's like a bunch of famous people. The cemetery holds around a million bodies. Yeah, but interesting. It's there. It's it's so beautiful. Oscar Wilde's one with the lipstick kisses all over it. I so went in cool. winter, and so it was like super moody and oh, like. Nice. You know, like there were no leaves on the trees. But I think it would just, it would look beautiful in any season, that cemetery. Um, (laughs) But there are rules if you're buried in in that cemetery, like strict rules. So you have to have died in Paris or you have to live in Paris to be buried there. You cannot exhume a body. Oh. Mm Mm-mm. I know. Hmm. There are leases also, so you can purchase a 30-year lease, a 50-year lease, a 100-year lease, or like a forever lease. So Jim has a forever lease. But if you have a 30-year lease but you can't exhume the body, what happens? Well, they just bury you can't, someone on top of you? No, they then they do. So after the, the, so the minimum oh, okay. lease is 30 years and after that point, if you can't afford the lease anymore, your decomposed remains are dug up and you're put into an ossuary. Even though you're dead. Even though you're dead. But it, you can leave it to, like, your kids or uh, something, I you know. It, but but then if they can't pay. afford it, you need to keep paying that lease. Um, <laughs> but I, I get, like, how people want to clutch on to, like, the, um, the idea of him faking his own death because it's like the ultimate prank. It's yeah. like no one could exhume him to find out. It's great. No autopsy. And there's a gate. Well, not a gate. There's a fence around his yeah. grave as yeah. well. I wonder if that's in later times because there were people there when I was there. There was like cigarette packs and there was oh, like yeah. booze we and shit. We just climbed over the fence. Oh, when did you, what year did you go? Ten years ago. Ten years ago. I went in 2008. But it wasn't a like... Big fence. No, but I, I feel think like it I could was get just quite like, close to it, but maybe I've just made that up in my head. I did look a, a deterrent, lot. but people had climbed over it and we climbed over it. 100%. <laughs> I wanted to tell you one fun fact, though, because apparently all of the 27 Club died with a white big lighter by their side. Did you know what? that? <laughs> that is such a fucking weird I know, it's thing. so weird. <laughs> Don't ever have a white big if you're 27. Just get whatever, get that weird poo brown colour. I love the poo brown Oh, my thing. God, no. It's my favourite. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> so, like, I like the Doors music. I think Jim kind of embodied this epitome of rock and roll front man that everyone wants to fuck. Like, he, he paved the way in that respect, I think. I like doing impressions of Jim Morrison, like, sometimes. <laughs> Gimme. <laughs> when I'm like... 
approaching a link between rooms, I like to say, walk on down the hall. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, Amber, why do you love them? I think they're a really, really fucking great white boy blues band, obviously. The the best of all the white boy blues bands. Yeah, no, and that's fair. I listened to them nonstop as a teenager, and I've gone through phases as an adult where I've listened to them quite a lot. I'm I'm actually in a bit of an off phase right now, but that doesn't mean that I won't pick it up in three days' time. But I I just find their music really fun. Yeah. It's and it's super evocative. It puts me in a certain mood. I've listened to it heaps when we were in LA <laughs> driving around. I just yes. was thinking about wishing that I could have been there then. Um, I just think he's a good time guy, but maybe I don't so much now. He's so just gross. such a mess. Yeah, it's pretty but sad. also the thing I guess. Reading that, it's like, sure, you know, he's a rock star, but it's like, what about the other three members of that band who had to deal with that constantly? Oh, what a nightmare. <laughs> constantly. Just like. Well, think about bands now, like Sticky Fingers and stuff. Ugh, I like, don't think you about know, that. I feel for the other guys in that band mm. who were just like, dude, we finally made it and you're fucking it all up, being a massive asshole. And the other thing is, like, with the, the other guys, like, I don't know about all of them, but they were, like, married with kids as well, like, you know, throughout this time. It's, like, a different – I'm sure they partook, like. Sure, especially in the beginning when they were – Yeah, but then – Yeah. What's your favourite Doors song? Uh, Probably, like, probably L.A. Woman or – I used to love People Are Strange when I was – a teenager. Yeah. Because I'm so weird. Um, <laughs> no, I think I was exactly the same. <laughs> and Riders on the Storm is so beautiful. I'm into Crystal Ship. The oh, Crystal yeah, Ship. I like that. Song. Before you <laughs> slip into. All right. Okay. So I'm going to tell you, I mean, like, to be fair, I think that I've prefaced some of his like downfalls quite um, thoroughly. In yeah. that in that initial bio, because yeah. it was involved, but I'll tell you about a couple of things. So we'll start early. It was around like 1965, according to John Densmore's book, Riders on the Storm, My Life with James Morrison and the Doors. He drove Jim to a woman named Rosanna's apartment in Beverly Hills. She was a student at UCLA, pretty fancy, mm. living in Beverly Hills. Um, and when Jim arrived, Rosanna seemed quite surprised he was there. And Jim then made himself right at home, rolled a spliff on the kitchen table and John headed off because he, you know, felt some third wheel action happening. Uh, (laughs) He drove around for a while before returning to Rosanna's because he wasn't sure if Jim was going to stay there or if he needed a ride. So he got to the door and he did like a little, little knock, but the knock kind of pushed the door open because it, it was, it wasn't locked. Uh, it was ajar, one of my most f- fucking hated words. Um, um, and then there was a rather confronting scene because Jim had Rosanna's arm behind her back and he had a big old kitchen knife against her stomach. No. 
and I wanted to read a little bit of John's book where he writes, my pulse tripled. What have we got here? I exclaimed, trying to diffuse the situation. Quite an unusual way of seducing someone, Jim. Jim looked at me with surprise and let Rosanna go. Just having a little fun. That's what Jim said. Ew. So Jim puts the knife down. John realises he's in a band with a fucking psycho and he asks Jim if he wants a ride home. Jim declines and then John fucking leaves. What? John just gets out of there. He later days is out of there. And he wrote, I was worried about Rosanna, but I was more worried about myself. Oh, what a cunt. Nice one, John. Nice That's one. That's terrible. All right. That's, a, I mean, obviously Jim Morrison is a fucking idiot. I mean, that. yeah. It's... And I'm mad at John too. Psycho, but yeah, John, you're on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, John. So um, I mentioned the Miami incident and Jim's first arrest, but I thought I'd go through the litany of run-ins with the law. So we'll kick off 1963. He was officially charged with disturbing the peace by being drunk. When he was like, he was just generally being a, a dickhead and he stole a police officer's hat. Then in 1966, Jim and some pals embarked on a road trip into the desert and one of his mates, Phil Oleno, was on board. But when they returned, Phil wasn't with them anymore. So where the heck was Phil? Phil? Phil. So Jim boasted about killing his mate and burying him in the desert, which is super chill, super chill. Um, Why isn't that a known thing? I don't know. Well, maybe because of this. So unfortunately for Jim, Phil's father was a lawyer and he pushed for a police investigation because his baby boy Phil was just still nowhere to be found. Phil. I know. And then what became of the investigation was a sexual assault charge because Jim had grabbed a 14-year-old girl and (gasps) kissed her without... Like, consent. He, like, jumped out of a car and kissed her. Um, but where's Phil? Yeah, but then the charges were dropped because, poof, Phil appeared. Oh, Phil, <laughs> Phil's thank okay. God. I know, we were all worried about <laughs> Phil. Then in 1967, Jim was arrested for inciting a riot and decency and public obscenity. So he was backstage, he was with a lady friend, and the police officer came and, like, interrupted them. Jim just refused to leave and then he was maced and then while performing the song Backdoor Man, he referred to the police as the little blue man in the little blue hat and he also called him a little blue pig. <laughs> and then he... <laughs> um, hey, Cab. He was all like, they'll do it to you, I'm one of you! And then, yeah, inside a riot. So uh, <laughs> then next... <laughs> It's what was nine- their problem, though? The police? Yeah, it was just getting it on with somebody and they are like, go away. He did, they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognise who he was. So? And then afterwards they apologised about it, but they shouldn't have just like... Even if they don't know who he was... I think he was pretty antagonistic. I think generally he was to the police, which, you know... Just, they interrupted him in a private moment. I've literally said to a police officer, you look like an idiot. Good. So... I didn't get mace, thankfully. But also maybe that's because it's an unjust system. I won't get into it. I've already said it on the podcast before. Yeah. Um, So 
So next, in 1968, he was arrested for public drunkenness and we're at the Pussycat Agogo in the Vegas Strip. Um, so this is apparently the first rock and roll venue in the city of Sin as well. Yeah, right. Uh, great name. Yeah, it's good. And Jim was smoking a joint or he was pretending to smoke a joint because he was like such a prankster. <laughs> um, and a security guard wasn't about that jazz cigarette life. And... Um, Jim became quite hostile and he suggested that the security guard jump up his ass and it wasn't received with kindness and the police came. <laughs> um, and then Jim just like was relentlessly kind of mocking them. He was pushing the envelope a lot. And his mate, Bob Gover, a writer, they were arrested, they were thrown in a cell and boric acid was thrown on them for good measure. Whoa. Yeah. Boric acid. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. And I... Fuck it, the I, police. F- yeah. I was going to sing it, but... Um, <laughs> they also threatened him with, like, his fate. But luckily he didn't stick around long enough to find out what that would be. But I think it did put, like, the fear of God in him because they did, like, allegedly say some quite like, problematic things about what they were going to do to him. I want to kill you. Exactly. <laughs> Or how he was going to be treated in prison, which I'm sure wouldn't be great. But mm. he, um, th- thankfully, Robert Gover's girlfriend bailed them out. And again in 1969, the doors returned to Jim's home state. And this is what I mentioned before. They went back to Florida. They went to Miami. He was arrested for lewd and lascivious behaviour, indecent exposure, public profanity and public drunkenness. For getting out that pain. Mm-hmm. So Jim allegedly made some gestures. He firstly stimulated a little blowy on Rob- Robbie Krieger's guitar. It's fine. <laughs> And then Jim kind of mime choking the ham and the crowd went wild. <laughs> and then he started screaming, revolution! <laughs> and also, want to see my cock? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so this seems to stir up the crowd quite a lot and they packed way more people than were allowed into that venue in there. Uh, and what, but one fella was a witness, like when he went to trial for this, one fella who was a witness said he definitely didn't expose his junk. This isn't a quote. This is my paraphrasing. He knew that Jim had been arrested so many times that he made sure that that pecker did not make an appearance. (laughs) And also Robbie Krieger said that there were hundreds of photos taken at this gig and none of them showed Jim's goodies. That's I don't think he did it, frankly. I think he probably came very close and maybe some people got a little glimpse. And if he did, but at not least a, he asked. He did. You want to see my cock? <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me. Please. Louis C.K. could learn a fucking thing or two. Yeah, I'd say so. So he was found guilty and an appeal was launched, but Jim died before it was settled. And he was eventually pardoned for this by the state's Board of Executive Clemency in 2010 due to there (laughs) being enough doubt surrounding the incident. Who gives a fuck? Why did they waste any time or money on that? That is mental. It's, yeah, it's it's really. Did someone request it? I don't, yeah. Who fucking gives a shit? Who who cares? That makes me so mad. Ozzy Osbourne had a bash. Did he, though? I don't know. I wasn't there. So in 1970, 
Jim was yet again arrested, this time for suspicion of public drunkenness. He fell asleep on a woman's porch in Los Angeles (laughs) and she found him on her way to retrieve her morning paper and tried to wake him up to no avail and then called the police. Um, And that's six arrests. Also, I think he was banned from Phoenix. I didn't mention that. And there was an incident on an airline. Fun. I was going to talk about Jimbo. So that was Jim Morrison's dirty drunk alter ego. And he was a real asshole. And that's who would like drive Jim to become this asshole. Uh, Ray Manzarek was quoted saying, there was a personality transformation that alcohol brought out. Jimbo. Jimbo the lout. There was a lout side to to Jim that eventually killed him. Jimbo killed Jim Morrison in Paris. Goddamn Jimbo. I know. <laughs> I love it's such a it's such a fucking convenient excuse. Yeah. It wasn't him, it was Jimbo. I was Nara Kissin. <laughs> I don't know her. Um, it was Jonesy. It wasn't me. It was no. Jonesy. Um so also um I read he had an obsession with anal sex. Okay. Well, he did say he was our backdoor man, so it's fine. I don't care. No, neither. I just thought I'd mention it for fun. <laughs> um, according to some sources as well, Jim really fancied Janis Joplin and the two met at a party uh, at producer Paul Rothschild's place and Paul described Jim as being a cretin, a disgusting drunk. And at this party, as you can imagine, Janice and Jim just consumed an extremely concerning amount of alcohol. You can imagine those two together, right? Um, And there's a couple of different stories, but this is the one I like the most because apparently Jim's mate slash alter ego Jimbo was on a rampage and he tried to push push Janice's head into his crotch, which was filthy, like he wore those leather pants for years. His gross soil, yeah, his soil (laughs) trousers. You can just imagine it. And Janice was known for not taking shit, and she whacked him over the head with her signature companion, a bottle of Southern Comfort. Yeah, Janice, fuck Fuck that guy. That's so good. I know, I love it. Um, (laughs) Finally, I was just going to mention one last thing that Jim hung out with Charles Manson. Like, I know that you know that Manson and his followers, mostly mostly his female followers, basically took over sweet, sweet Dennis Wilson's home. Oh, mm-hmm. Dennis, you f- what are you doing? What a dickhead. It cost him like $740,000 in today's money, what they, their, their stay. I'm not at all. So Dennis introduced Charlie and Jim, I believe, and funnily enough, Jim had many haircuts from JC Bring. Wow. The hairstylist to the stars and oh, one of the victims no. of the murders committed by the Manson family at Sharon Tate's That's gaff. so sad. I know. Um, also, Manson attended some of their recording sessions. And what? I, yeah. Is that really true? Well, I read some articles. I mean, I'm not going to, like, yeah, I, re- I read that he was present. That's fucking wild. I didn't know that. And... He was desperate to be a rock star, yeah, Manson, but, you know, unfortunately he had absolutely no talent. No. Wamp, wamp, wamp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kill some people for no fucking reason then. Ugh. Dick. So foul. Anyway, so 
questionable company for sure, which we've spoken about. But um, I guess I'd like to know, do you still love him madly? Do you still want to be his daddy? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that's the last one. That's the last one. I feel like actually he's just really sad to me now. That's how I felt. Yeah. Whereas before I, I didn't, I guess I didn't really, I knew he was a drunk but I didn't really think of him as, like, such an out-of-control, sad drunk. Like, so, like, how many times can I say, like, so just sad. It is really sad. I mean, because and the thing about his, like, level of intelligence as well, I found really interesting yeah. in that as well. Because, and this is my fault, but I think I knew that he was a very volatile, like consistently drunk person. I didn't know the extent until I did the reading, but I never knew that he was as clever as he was. And I hope that doesn't sound yeah. horrible, but it's like. Oh, no, that change, it makes it sad. I so always thought he was sad. a bit dumb <laughs> yeah. because of, I, I thought he must, he must have been a little bit like of an, a ding dong because he was consistently fucked, but. It does make it sadder for me. Yeah. Poor Jim. Oh, Jim. Sorry they suck. Soz. We have used multiple sources in the research for this podcast. All of these can be found in the show notes. This podcast was written by Cara Nissen and Amber Jones with music and engineering by Morgan Jones. DJ Morgs! <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have laughed. I like it.